Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bircher and this is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode, I think it's 102, and I'm not going to worry so much about titles. I'll add that later. Uh, and I just wanted to apologize for being a few weeks delayed. Uh, I'm getting, I'm, I'm starting this project and I've got all this energy and I've really got to sort of hash out um, the right way to sort of couch or contain these ideas and, and focus into some sort of an outline. And it's it's been a struggle. And I think what I've caught myself doing is sort of that classic, how uh, the way you should do things, right? Like I know if you're going to sit down and write a book or an essay, you got to make an outline, you do research. And, but I find, and if you refer back to the hundred and some episodes I've recorded, inspiration and, and passion uh, go a long way uh, at getting through some of this drudgery. You know, the whole thing with like writer's block. I think that happens because you sort of sit down and you try to make something happen. And, I, and I, in the last couple of weeks, I've sort of tried to do that. And rather than let too much time pass between episodes, what I'm going to do is use the first three or four or five or six to to throw out my ideas in various formats. And the only thing I can really apologize for is that this might be a little repetitive uh, as I hone in a little bit closer on what I'm doing. And what I want to do with this particular episode is... To, um, repeat what I said on, in, the, in the sort of preview episode about the acid tests and what I'm going to be doing. Clear up a few mistakes that I made on the first podcast because my memory isn't <clears throat> so clear on the acid tests. Go figure, probably apropos for the subject matter. And then talk a little bit about, uh, restate the question and the hypothesis to sort of get us ready for the investigation or sort of the testing of this idea that we're going to do in the upcoming 100 episodes or whatever, and uh, then talk a little bit about why I'm the right guy and probably the only guy uh, or person to tackle this issue, uh, which I think gets a little bit toward credibility and may actually redefine the concept of credibility, which is my real goal. Overall, what I want to do in this, this whole thing is going to be Flipping all the paradigms, the ultimate in thinking outside the box, uh, the ultimate in unrestrained dogmatic, as much as one can be, all right? I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else. I just tend to do things a little bit differently, and right now, I don't have any ties that constrain me uh, toward whatever end goal. I'm really just curious about this question. Okay. Last week, I talked about the electric Kool-Aid acid test and mistakenly attributed that to Timothy Leary, who was the famous LSD guru uh, that was a Harvard professor, started working with LSD. Maybe his research projects got a little hand, out of hand. Maybe they didn't. Harvard fired him. He sort of went on to be sort of the godfather of LSD and, and talked everyone into tuning in, turning on, and dropping out. Everybody needs to do acid. Okay, I'm cool with that. I don't think everyone ought to do acid. Uh, or any psychedelic drugs, I do think they offer a lot of insight into the question that I'm proposing here, our mental health and uh, our connection with the planet and a lot of other things. I have my own profound psychedelic experiences. And truthfully, at 50, I'm considering uh, revisiting to the degree that I can uh, some of those experiences and um, you know, seeing how I've changed in 30 years or whatever. Now, Ken Kesey was the author of the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And it's really interesting because he was a journalist who <laughs> was given LSD by 
our military, U.S. military, national government, who were doing um, experiments to see if this new, newly discovered substance had any military value, right? <laughs> uh, which is hilarious if you think about it, because what it did was sort of give him the idea that, holy crap, this is amazing. It's a terrible idea to use it for, for military, but it's really awesome. And then he, and so he wrote the electric Kool-Aid acid test, which sort of documented this um, leakage of this drug into the public domain and the hippies got a hold of it and started doing all their stuff with it. Whereas before it was sort of discovered in a lab, I think by, uh, Algis Huxley. I can't, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Don't hold me accountable for that. I'm not going to correct it. Uh, it was discovered in a lab and then discovered that it had some interesting psychological effects in a lab. And then it was contained in a lab and used for research in the fifties. And I think there were several hundred papers produced, um, and then made it out into the public, which is going to happen anyway. They blame it on Timothy Leary, you know, partially Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead and some of these other people. But, you know, it was bound to happen. You don't just discover something like that and, and keep it under wraps. Anyway, so to get toward, to, to, that's just really all long way to go to get to the metaphor of the idea of the electrical aid acid test which was specifically about seeing what LSD was all about in a public setting and maybe in a lab too. I don't know. The book certainly didn't document much of that. But an acid test is, is something where you, you know, like pH, right? You, you're testing something using a reagent to see whether it's acidic or alkaline. You know, will it pass the acid test? It's just sort of a vernacular figure of speech that we use to say, Okay, we we got to answer this question. Let's put it through some some sort of rigor. We call that an acid test. And if it if it shows a color change or some indicator decreases and increases in acidity, then that we consider that a positive or negative result or whatever. So in general, an acid test. Now, what I'm using the metaphor for, and again, which I think is clever. Maybe you don't care, and we're going to go with it. And really, truthfully, we're going to go with it. Probably won't hear about it again after this episode. It's just sort of the the, the the motivational concept, right? Is that can we use deoxyribonucleic acid in this sort of acid test to determine whether or not it has some value in explaining what I call the big unanswered questions or the big questions, right? And and more than just DNA, I'm so I'm using it as sort of a proxy, right? Like we're interested in heat that is produced by a reaction and how we measure that heat. We measure a thermometer, which basically measures what we call temperature, which is an indirect measure of how much or how little heat is existing in some substance, right? We're not measuring the heat. We're measuring a temperature, which is, uh, you know, old school, uh, a change in the density of mercury, right? As it would raise or lower along this scale. So we measure things indirectly, uh, as using proxies, right? Some things we just, we can't measure a good sort of non-quantitative one is IQ. How do we measure human intelligence? You can't just stick a probe in your head and go, Oh, you're seven. Oh, you're a nine, whatever. You can't measure intelligence, but we developed a proxy measure of several proxy measures of intelligence. One of the most popular is IQ, the intelligence quotient. Then you answer all these questions. I mean, come on, really? Are we measuring <laughs> intelligence? no, 
You know, like you were measuring personality type with a Myers-Briggs questionnaire. No. Well, newsflash, a whole lot of science and investigative thinking is measured using proxies. And so the proxy I use here is DNA to represent nature. And the bigger question is, can we look to nature in her beauty and 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 in her temporal wisdom as influenced by natural selection, geological processes, physics as we know them, over time, in a millions of years time scale, can we use nature to inform the big questions? And the big questions that I consider to be unanswered and probably unresolvable, you know, I'm not... Um, which brings up another subject, which I think I covered in episode one, you know, facts and truth, is there are things that we know, that we know things. We know that uh, um, apples produce seeds. You put the seeds in the ground, you can grow an apple tree. We know that the earth is rotating, uh, both on its own axis and around the sun, and we're going to get 24-hour day-night cycles and 365 day annual cycles with seasons and stuff, depending on where you want. We know some things. There's a sphere that's not much bigger than that, but who knows, some degree bigger than that sphere called the unknown. Things that we simply don't understand yet. And I'm I'm not really willing to go to bat uh, as to what that is or how big that is, except to say that I think it's a lot smaller than most scientists do. I think most scientists think the unknown is just stuff we don't know yet. Right, uh, which says that someday we'll know it all, and the sphere of the known and the sphere of the unknown will merge to be the same. I don't see it like that at all. Uh, and in fact, I think there is a much larger sphere outside those two. Well, one, I think that the sphere of the unknown is you know twice as big, three times as big as the sphere of the known. And then the other one, which is probably 50 times bigger or maybe a 1,000 times bigger than either of those, is the unknowable. You know, we can't know it all. We are limited as human beings by our senses. We are not some, you know, some terminal <laughs> realization of perfection along the evolutionary chain. Um, and so what, what remains, one of the big unknowns that will probably be in the unknowable is why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What is my individual purpose? Are we connected? What does it all mean? What are we supposed to do? You know, what is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? There's all these questions that have not been answered, despite the fact that entire disciplines have been developed and thinking systems have been developed to and and presumed solutions or answers to these questions have been proposed and to some degree you know, some people think we have figured them out and all you have to do is live the right life or whatever. This is in the realm of things like religion and philosophy, a lot of the sciences, uh, psychology, neuroscience. You know, a lot of these disciplines are pursuing some of these questions. Most of them don't really want to go there. Because there's still this, especially since the scientific revolution and the arguments between spiritual lines of thinking and sort of more scientific lines of thinking have butted heads over who's going to get there first. It's like an arms race. Both sides, I think, realize that their tools are too limiting to truly get 
at some of these answers. From the science perspective, a lot of it's because things aren't things aren't measurable or provable. You can't generate evidence for God uh, in a scientific way. And then from the religious perspective, um, it gets a, it, 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 you're, you get you end up in a space where a lot of it is just conjecture. A lot of it is just ideas that you can't generate any uh, evidence for, and so it becomes like super soft. So you've got tools that just have been ineffective. And part of this, which I'll get into in you know maybe the next or the following episodes, is that the tools are too dogmatic. And the perfect example in my mind is philosophy. I love philosophy. I love navel-gazing and armchair thinking and trying to explain stuff. But then you go to read philosophy, and the bureaucratic, dogmatic structure makes me lose all interest in it. And if you look at philosophy, it's all done the same way. It all follows the same sort of rubric. You know, originally it was a dialogues. You had to write philosophy in a dialogues, in a, a dialogue form. And actually, I think we probably sh- should think about revisiting that. But nowadays, it's, you know, just giving your thought process a name and calling it something cute and placing it in the context of arguing for or against these other positions. And it becomes this like, Robert's Rules of Order debate structure that's boring to read. And and I'm not saying it's any better or worse than anything else because the Bible's pretty boring to read. A scientific journal article is pretty boring to read. And all of those are boring to read because of the structure, the dogma inherent into them. And if you become or, or to be recognized as a philosopher, you know, if you want to get credentialed and go to school for 12 years and become a philosopher, PhD, whatever, by that time, you've been indoctrinated into the whole system. And really, in order to get anything said and to be get invited to the party and have a seat at the table, you have to prescribe to all those rules, too. That's true for every discipline to the point where it's the narcissism of small differences. You know, you can go to a meeting of aquatic insect, people who study aquatic insects, and I can tell you this because I've done it, and you'll get multiple schools of thought that don't recognize the attributes. Or really, they're just, they're just throwing mud at each other. And it's like, dudes, you all study the same stuff and dudettes. You know, why are you, what, are you an idiot? But that's just what happens. That's just an artifact of associating your identity with your career, right? And for making it a career in the first place, which leads me to talk a little bit about why I'm the perfect guy to do this. I have nothing to lose. (laughs) You know, I quit an academic career um, with my credibility intact, except for the fact that I quit. Uh, with papers that are still cited, you know, one of my claims to fame, I guess, if, if it, I don't care, but it, you may care. My papers are ci- often cited in the first paragraph of succeeding papers that I've inspired, right? It's become, you know, a dogmatic example of the science. Um, but it doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not receiving any funding to do any research. I don't work for an academic university where, you know, my paycheck is on the line. I don't have any, and truthfully, I don't have any love for the particular field I was in, right? It was a means to an end. It's like the topic, the subject was, didn't, I, I, you know, I had a particular interest in aquatic fauna, fish and insects that live in streams, right? I had to do some science to get a PhD. 
meant to build a career. I needed to sort of and and ask you know have have some area of study to focus on. And I just sort of said, well, and this is crazy to think about. What affects these guys? What affects these guys? What affects these biota living in streams? I don't. I don't know if you have a full appreciation for how ridiculously broad that question is, but it's the opposite of reductionist. You know, it's the the most broad thing I can think of. What affects these things? And because I was so naive. And so not following some example, you know, most scientists would go, okay, what did, what did this person do? I'll just do what they did again, and maybe something new will come out of it. I, it's just sort of a me too type of thing. I, they weren't really looking at the question. In fact, mostly where people fail in science, religion, philosophy, is what's the question that you're trying to ask in the first place? You skip three or four or five steps down, you're more concerned about your degree, your career, how much money you're going to make, your credibility, your status, your power, your image. These are the things that are motivating you, and you sort of skip right to there. It's like, well, how can I get more money? How can I get more recognition? How can I get this job? And, and the question is, long. you never even knew what it was because of the three or four researchers ahead of you who you're emulating, they asked the question and you never even realized it. And so what is the question? And again, for our purposes here in the next few episodes, the question is, can patterns of nature that have evolved, which gives you the DNA link, you know, I'm using DNA as a proxy measure of nature through time, and with all of Darwin's assumptions that what we find today in nature is there because of fitness and and natural selective forces related to the DNA, and the, the, the sort of sort of phenotype and the physiology of those individuals, can we use what we see in nature now and in the past to inform us about these bigger questions in life? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What is our purpose? Are we doing a good job? Are we living a good life, right? Are we successful, as a species, as humans, as individuals, as cultures, as societies, what does it all mean? Those are huge questions. And I'm just saying, or it's a huge question, right? And I'm just asking, can we use what, you know, not even can we use nature because we can, right? It's more, what does a look at the natural world tell us without the constructs of psychology and philosophy and, or, you know, minimizing those to the greatest degree possible without the biases inherent to those individual fields to take a true holistic systems approach. Oh, so going back to my degree. So what I did is I asked this very broad question. And so what that made me do is consider all the variables, right? Not just like in a lab, and, and this is why, as an ecologist, I'm perfect for this, because ecology is a study of everything in the context of biological systems. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about religion or spirituality, or, um, but you're talking about how an organism is influenced. So you've got to look at everything in the universe that could influence that. And so what this led me down, I had a figure one time in a, in a poster, and it got ridiculed. Because I had like fish and bugs in the middle. And then every other variable I could possibly think of, water pH, water temperature, sediment concentration, land 
form, underlying geology, geological rocks, you know, seasonality, latitude, longitude, you know, everything I could think about. And I said, here's where I'm starting. You know, the question is, how do all these things, I thought about every possible thing that could in any possible way have any possible thing to do with whether or not these fish or bugs are healthy or present or absent or whatever. That's a lot. It's an overwhelming number of variables. Then most people went, you're an idiot. You know, anybody could tell you that. Everything affects it great. But then what I did is I designed a scientific-led, evidence-based approach to answer the question, which one of these variables are more important? Can I build a model that predicts what we see out of all this craziness? And guess what? There are ways outside the context of natural biology, biological sciences, mind you. I borrow tools from sociology and psychology because those fields study variables you can't measure, right? And they have developed tools that aren't approved by the scientific community because they don't follow a normal distribution or, you know, they don't require some massive sample size or, you know, some absurd number of replicates on the lab bench, which is genius, but I didn't know any better. I just went, Man, has anybody ever asked a question like this? Oh, these guys over here in uh, you know, the study of um, IQ, they did? Cool. Well, what, how did they do it? Okay, well, I'll just do it that way. And there were people in my field that went, wow, that's amazing. But most of the people in my field went, you're an idiot. Anyway, I think the record shows that I wasn't an idiot, and I was kind of on to something. And really, it was an excellent way to approach the question. And so similarly... I don't care if it's fish. You know, now I'm more interested in the spiritual connection of humans on the planet. And sort of, I guess, the bigger question, the driving, the motivation that comes before the question, why am I concerned with this, is that our world seems to be out of whack. I often fantasize, and I'll talk about, I'll I'll close this one up here and I'll start the next episode on this. I always fantasize that in the hundreds of thousands of years Homo sapiens has been around, in the millions of years that hominids have been around, in the millions of years that primates have been around, that there were times when we did things better. That where we are in our world right now, like in the last 500 years, have gotten dramatically, incredibly, fastidiously, and expediently worse by lots of different measures. Uh, I'll talk about that and the next episode. I hope you will join me in this trip and help me make this a true discourse. Comment on the YouTube videos. Email me. You comment on my blog on my website where I post the the, 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 the new episodes every Thursday. And tell me what you think. You know, I, I realize a lot of this seems really whack. Um, but as we take on this acid test and ask whether or not DNA as a measure of nature can provide some information to help us Get back on track as humans. I'm Chris Bircher. This has been Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. I think it's 100, episode 102, and I will see you next time. Take it easy.